0: Welcome to Beyond Curious with LCP. We explore the big questions of tomorrow with a fresh take on the innovations and trends that are shaping the business world and beyond, from AI to Gen Z. Join us on the journey. So, day three of the PLSA conference. Lassia, how are you feeling?
1: I'm feeling pretty good, but I'm not sure everybody else here can say the same. It seems like lots of people had quite a big night out yesterday. So we're seeing some sore heads. Coffee is very popular once again. The 9 a.m. talk that we were in was a little bit quiet, but it's a really good day. Lots of great sessions, and importantly, loads of guests coming onto our podcast today.
0: On which, and linked to the 9 a.m. quiet session, <laughs> um, Clive at wellsteed LCP Planner, and John Towner, LNG Managing Director, are our first guests on the podcast this morning, hot off uh, the press, as it were, from their 9 a.m. session. So if you did miss that, you get a chance to hear the highlights today on the podcast will then be joined by the likes of Richard Lord from Royal Mail Pension Trustee, Michelle Wright of own Michelle Wright of LCP, Lizzie Holiday, Helen Miles and Lou Davy of TPR. So great hosts of guests today. Again, lots of brilliant content. The only place to hear a great summary of today's events if your head is feeling a little sore this morning. So do listen in and enjoy day three of the PLSA. Brilliant. So we're
1: now joined by Helen Miles, Chair of the NHS Pensions Board. Welcome, Helen. Thank you, Lasse. Have you been enjoying the conference so far? It's been great to share the energy that's in the conference centre. There's a lot of thinking going on and lots of good ideas. So you're in quite a unique position, I think, because the NHS pensions works a bit differently to a lot of the other pension schemes that are here at this conference. Can you tell us a little bit about how it actually works?
2: Yeah, so we're an unfunded scheme. We're the largest of the four big unfunded schemes in the public service. We've got over 3 million members. And as you might imagine quite a big constituency of different members from highly paid technical consultants down to the hospital staff you see whenever you visit. We've also got multiple employers, but we're not a trust. And our governing body has two main constituent parts. That's the pensions board and the scheme advisory board or the SAP. I'm independent chair of the pensions board with 12 other individuals split. 50-50 between employer representatives and staff representative groups. And the Scheme Advisory Board, which I don't belong to, but they are a mixture of employer and employee representatives. Our roles are set out in our NHS pension scheme regulations. So the Pensions Board has to give assurance to the Secretary of State currently Stephen Barclay, about the compliance, governance and administration of the scheme and also how we deal with the requirements of TPR. The Scheme Advisory Board has the remit to advise the Secretary of State on changes to the scheme and actually that will look at benefit changes. Obviously, we're still full of lots of active members, over 1.7 million of them, but they will also look at issues like contribution rates and... that that comes into the aspects of pay awards, things like that, so quite a bit more current, whereas we are perhaps the other end of the pension transaction uh, with a focus on delivery and compliance and, of course, our members.
3: And I guess you have many more stakeholders than a traditional pension scheme because you've got the unions who have a strong voice around what they want to see, protection of benefits. You have some of the NHS employers and their interests and what they would like to see you've got cost control from Treasury and you've got the department and then you've got comparisons I guess against all the other emergency service type employers fire and police and so on so how do you balance all those and recognize all those different interests and and voices?
2: David you're right it's probably one of the most complex schemes that I've ever dealt with and I've spent 30 years as pensions lawyer working with a lot of other pension schemes. In our pensions board, because there are 13 of us, there's a lot of voices around those tables, from the trade unions, Unite and Unison, for instance, from people like the Royal College of Nurses, from NHS Employers, NHS England, and some local payroll departments from uh, hospitals across country. And uh, we're talking about England and Wales here, Scotland is, is separate. Now genuinely it's about team working and we hold our meetings and have our discussions with representatives from our administrator NHS Business Services but the DHSC is always there and the policy team they're very well engaged and very much around team working with our board and indeed with the SAB. and you know about I think last summer I had a call from DHSC talking about something they were concerned about. They wanted the pensions board to drive as an initiative to ask for BSA to focus on a particular area. Genuinely put our heads together and then taking the views from the other pension board members and teamwork to try and get that changed to how the administration practice was going. So it is a really diverse group of voices. Of course, that takes a bit of time, but we manage that communication quite well and it is very important that we are reflecting The multiple stakeholder interests, as you say, that we have to keep in mind, it's it's never easy. We probably won't always get it right, but we're always trying,
3: certainly. You mentioned there up front that it's not funded, so you don't have the worries that some of the members here have around the investment of their assets and volatility and, and risk and so on. And you mentioned there that the NHS Business Services provides the administration and you've got an enormous scheme. You are 1.7 million active members, I aren't mean,
2: Mind-blowing. Mind, absolutely <laughs> mind-blowing
3: around there. So does that mean, you know, a lot of your role is looking at administration? And I guess there you've also got competing challenges that I think the driver to do that was to drive efficiency in payments but against that you've got the quality of service to members so how do you balance those things you know quality service to members while also being really efficient in terms of use of taxpayers money
2: absolutely david so one of the key items that we look at in our meetings is always progress against the kpis that we've set for performance and delivery and occasionally something goes a bit out of kilter with that and we definitely I always ask to know pretty quickly and then to hear what the plan is for recovery and to make sure that issues don't arise more than once is the key for me. But we also use uh, advice input to our pensions board from benchmarking surveys. Uh, We use CEM, who benchmark looking at the other unfunded public service schemes and the other larger private sector funded schemes, and then reflect to us on not just the sort of cost per member, where their advice to us is that BSA does a decent job for a decent price, but actually DHSC has asked us to work with BSA on what else could be done and how to get a better service to members and also support for employers. You talked about the variety of employers that we have. They don't all have the same resources. And I find the Pensions Board's kind of got a bit between their teeth on that. We're quite keen. We do recognise, though, that what BSA does is funded by levy. And if that levy on employers goes up, there has to be a visible service enhancement for both the employers and, of course, their workforce. It's key. This is a really good workforce benefit. And that really needs to be appreciated and experienced.
3: And you've got the challenge, you've got some NHS trusts that have got resources and payroll resources, and then you've got GP surgeries where it might be the receptionist that's actually providing you with the data to administer the scheme. And we all know that GP receptionists sometimes change quite frequently. So how do you maintain that? Is that something that the board gets involved with or is that driven by business services?
2: So business services have their stakeholder engagement team, that drives that directly in terms of how they support people and how they will try to recognise the different needs of different employers. But at the Pensions Board, we want to know about that. We review it, not just as a stakeholder review, but we also put BSA to task to explain to us how they are being the hand reaching out to employers as well as to members. You do sometimes find in any big scheme that missing information can cause a benefit problem. When you've got a lot of varying expertise and just capacity at employers, not all employers can resolve that quickly. They don't have big payroll team and we've been keen as a pensions board to say to BSA we think you should be in the realm of actually trying to help reach out and help ensure that gets those necessary things get done be a little bit more proactive and I think that they didn't resist that request from the pensions board with the DHSC support and they've responded to it so we hope to see improvements coming from that but we are quite aware of it yes and certainly BSA has been providing more online access to webinars and training support for employers to help uh, keep them on board and identify where they need to reach out.
3: And and I suppose just the sheer scale of the scheme means that you can digitise things, that you can try technology, use technology much more efficiently. But actually, you mentioned uh, previously that your background is in the sort of traditional area. Are there experiences that you've taken from the trust background into your role with the NHS? And actually, are there things that we could learn from the other way? Are there things that happen within public sector schemes, large schemes like the NHS, which actually others could learn from, you know, the trustees that are here today, other things that they could benefit from your experience.
2: I think that's fair, David. There are those sort of areas. So one of the reasons why I come to conferences like this is to keep myself very much in the private sector schemes and seeing what they are doing and the other public service schemes and talking about the future. But DHSC certainly value the bridge that I can provide there And they are looking as well at what other providers do and are inspired by that. For my side, I'll give you an example where what I could get NHS Pensions Board was help on cyber. So a couple of years ago, when the regulator issued one of their survey results and they urged trustees and governing bodies to look more at cyber, we took a deep dive at the NHS Pensions Board into cyber risk. And the resources that were available to us to help us with the understanding, to help us get that assurance and the layers of assurance throughout uh, BS say and ourselves as pensions board were really quite amazing and that really infused me when talking to other schemes in the private sector that I work with about reaching out uh, for the resources that are publicly available actually to help trustees understand cyber risk areas.
1: And I mean, cyber risk is one of those things where probably a long time ago it wasn't at the forefront of all trustees' minds, but now it's gotten so big. And I think that just speaks to the fact that the role of the trustee, or whether that's on a kind of standard trust or whether that's a governing body, has just got so much more involved than perhaps it was 20 years ago. I mean, how have you seen the role of a trustee changing over time?
2: Oh, it's developed massively. And... It is the scope. I mean in the session earlier though when I was speaking alongside Liv from the regulator and Mark from Vidette we asked a poll around the room you might have seen it as to what people thought was important when you were appointing a trustee I really hoped everybody would go for adaptability Uh, actually a lot went for experience a few went for adaptability but it has become it's become far more exciting hasn't it because Mm. trustees are running enormous pools of money with a lot of interested stakeholders and quite honestly as we know our members their quality of life and that of their family depends upon us delivering the promises to them so I think it's a much more satisfying job now actually because there's a lot of things you can do and you can genuinely see that the results coming through with better funding and a more upbeat feel to the industry I, that isn't just us patting ourselves on the back and we are genuinely our better governed. but the debate around governance in the corporate sector and throughout the country is so much about improved quality improved expertise improved diversity both of views and experience and I think that now has come to us very clearly and I believe if we follow through on those things we'll find it a much more satisfying role as well. I think people genuinely will continue to enjoy it because of the value that they're adding and because they'll be operating in such a, a diverse and professional way. It'll be really satisfying.
3: And you, you mentioned diversity there. How much as a chair do you have influence over the makeup of the board or, or do you have to deal with What's presented to you? How do you ensure that you have got a diverse board? And how do you make sure it's inclusive? And how much control have you got over that?
2: We were asked this question by the regulator, and I have to say it was extraordinarily difficult to answer their their survey because we're quite unusual. So selection of our board comes from multiple organisations, which starts off and gives you a degree of diversity. For instance, on the NHS employers side, NHS employers really reach out across a number of employers, clues in the name. But so does that mean like um,
1: different hospital boards? So also. yeah,
2: we've we've had uh, we've got representatives from one of the South Western Hospital Trusts from one of the London uh, specialist hospital trusts, from NHS employers themselves, from NHS England, and from the Welsh Government institutions there. And then on the employee side, Unison, Unite, uh, Royal College of Nursing, BMA, that side. And within that, each of those will be doing their own processes. But we talk as a board about diversity because then we will be asking that those considerations are going in at that stage of nomination and selection there but sort of two things that come out from that and one is that our current pensioner board member he comes to the end of his 9 year maximum term next year we really want to be sure that we can find another pensioner because the voice of the pensioner is hugely important just the sort of the, the real experience of receiving that pension of receiving the service and we're also acutely aware that we all sit around there with lots of pensions experience and we're all of an age, really. And trying to get some younger people through who are engaged in pensions, I think it's a good opportunity at NHS because it's still an active scheme, because there's still a lot of workforce and employer representative engagement on the pension side. So it's really about asking them, you know, do reach out to everybody and try and get some engagement and enthusiasm because, goodness, the younger people are going to have a great long career engaging in pensions ahead of them so yeah that's what we want more myself I was appointed through the independent public appointments process and that's all that
1: information as to how that works is all available publicly brilliant well thank you so much for joining us Helen as we reach the end of the conference have you had any particular highlights or takeaways that you want to share Yeah, I think it is the regulator saying that they're
2: going to prepare to go and push the limits of their powers a bit. I think for those of us in the industry, if there is wrongdoing or things that are not being doing right, we'd like to see them improved. And if they're willing to use their powers to the fullest extent, I think we can only applaud that.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. much. Thank you.
4: Well, we're delighted to be joined in the Beyond Curious podcast studio by Lou Davey, who is the Interim Director of Regulatory Policy, Analysis and Advice. And with a title like that, she needs a bigger business card than the rest of us. On the grilling side of the table, we have uh, David Fares, a partner at LCP, and myself, Steve Webb. So Lou, you've had a busy conference, but thank you for sparing the time to join us.
0: Oh, thank you for inviting me on.
4: So There's a lot in that title, but you've been in in role for a number of months now. Can you just give us a flavour for for what the day job involves?
0: Sure. So I've been in this role now since uh, the beginning of March... So essentially, I'm responsible for the directorate that houses our policy team, which I'm very familiar with, having headed up that team previously. And also all of our professional advice functions. So our legal team, actuarial, investment consultancy and the covenant and financial analysis. So there is some analysis that goes on um, in there as well. But yes, it's it's essentially the policy and advisory teams within TPR.
4: And that's a big team by the sound of it?
0: Yes, around 135 in the directorate. So, yes, uh, and uh, it's an area as well where we're looking to, you know, make sure that we're really bolstering having the right expertise and having, you know, the kind of right, the right levels across those teams to make sure we can kind of cover all the bases that we need to.
3: And, Lou, you know, I suppose when you took the job on, there were a huge number of things that were ongoing, funding code, general code, value for money, the progression of CDC to multi-employer. So a huge number of things that were going on. And at the same time, then you had some new initiatives announced actually by the minister and also in the Mansion House speech. So how does that work? Because you've got a heavy workload. You've presumably got limited resources. I mean, I know you've got limited resources and you've got all these initiatives. So how does it work between you, DWP and Treasury about how you, you work out what you're going to work on first and, and which things take priority over others?
0: Sure, well I think um, in this case it was kind of doing everything all at once but um, uh, a lot of the things that were ongoing so some of the things that you mentioned you know, so the CDC, CDC work, value for money work obviously all, all formed part of that package of announcements over the summer as well which obviously we were very pleased about and the work was very advanced in those areas but other areas where actually the development was perhaps at an earlier level in terms of going out to industry in such a formal way so things around the details of trusteeship initiatives for example we've been doing a lot of thinking about that internally but it had to be quite quickly turned around into into a kind of public discussion paper there and some of the other kind of newer initiatives particularly around the kind of investment initiatives etc was some rapid thinking had to be done but i think actually in those instances and one of the things that's really great about the job, actually, is that you do see kind of people from all of those organisations coming together very rapidly, doing some, you know, really rapid but high quality kind of thinking through these issues and, and pulling it together in a really good way. So I think it's, it's kind of when the pressure's on like that, you often kind of see it coming together and working really, really well when it's quick decisions that need to be made without too much procrastination, I guess.
3: <laughs> and, and how do you balance different views within the mansion house proposals as the potential for the pension protection fund to take on a different role to become a consolidator and there you know you've got dwp who have a view treasury probably have a view ppf might have a view how how do how do those all balance out how does what role does the regulator play in those discussions
0: yeah so I, i think we see our role as as ensuring that that ministers have A well-informed position so our role is contributing to that and making sure that all of the information is there because obviously the ministers ultimately make the decisions around what's going to be taken forward and what isn't and so we consider each of those issues at the regulator if we think there are kind of key risks that need to be highlighted as part of that we will do that in many of the scenarios for example with with the db options piece for example we were fairly kind of agnostic actually we thought well actually there's merit in all of these things that are being discussed and so we didn't feel the need to kind of be sort of leaning for one one over the other but yeah so our role is to say look this is what we see in the market this is how we think these things could land and these are the things you need to think about and just make sure that we're giving an informed position there really.
3: And talked this morning around the fact that the landscape's changing. She promoted the idea of consolidation and, and getting fewer but larger schemes. She talked about how the regulator needs to react to those changes. But what does that actually mean for you as a regulator if instead of thousands of small schemes, actually you're suddenly just looking after six really large dc master trusts a few db master trusts maybe super funds when they start to grow what's your thinking in terms of how your resources need to you know you talked about having policy people and advisors how does that impact your people in terms of the way that the regulator needs to develop to react to that
0: Yeah, I think what it means is that, you know, we need to make sure that we're able to operate at the right calibre, I think. You know, we've got a lot of really talented people with lots of expertise at the regulator. So it's about making sure that we harness those expertise and deploy them in the right way. So moving from being a regulator that really sort of looks for the most part and certainly historically at kind of individual scheme interactions and dealing with schemes in that way to moving to a function where actually we're looking at the market more broadly and having much deeper conversations with the schemes that are in existence because there will be a lot more detail to get into and we will need to be assured that these big schemes are being well run and so there will necessarily be a much deeper level of intervention.
4: Just pick up on that Lou, we've just done an interview with someone from a large master trust. And it's quite interesting about the fitness for purpose of regulation designed, for example, to pull up the socks of a small DC scheme as against a dirty great master trust. And there was a bit of a message, I guess, from that master trust to say, well, it's going to cost us a lot of money, a lot of time to gather, just to gather all this data for value for money and so on. And we're wondering how much added value there is to our members, because there's a cost to this and we can't quite see the benefit. Whereas you could, presumably in a small, not very well run DCC. So how reassured are you that the sort of direction of travel of government policies is focused on the bits where the problem is, and doesn't just become a burden for everybody? You
0: know? I think there's an element of, of needing to kind of sort out the historic issues, but also making sure that we've got a framework that ensures that Going forward, things are fit for purpose. So that's why with the value for money framework in particular, yes, a big part of that will be to really highlight where the poor performance is and enable that to be driven out of the market. But looking forward, we want to be assured that the schemes that remain are continuing to deliver value. And what that value looks like will evolve over time. So what we might consider value for money today might look quite different in the future. And so it's important to have that framework there so you can kind of see how that's evolving. So I wouldn't say that it was not a good investment.
4: <laughs> and just just before David carries on, just on that you, you use the phrase about driving out the poor performers and so on. It'd be good to understand the mechanism because you know i saw the other day a tpr survey that the chief executive referred to this morning that basically said all these small matter trusts they just kind of ignore all the rules you know they don't do chair statements and so on now they're going to have a value for money obligation and they'll probably ignore that or do it sloppily or whatever and your boss kind of implied that you'd kind of like to shut them down force them to consolidate or whatever but you're not absolutely sure you've got the powers to do it i mean is that a fair characterization or
0: yeah, I think it's something that we need to explore. And so the regulatory initiative that we're running now on the value for member assessments for schemes with less than one hundred million pounds assets under management, we're really the start we're taking an enforcement starting point essentially. And what I mean by that is we are looking at actually, we anticipate finding a range of poor behaviour that we're not going to be happy with through this. And that's just because that's what our research shows. It's That's a fair assumption to be making at this point. So we're looking at actually what's, a, what's our strategy here? What are the tools that we have got available? Historically, we have been very much more around kind of encouraging people, making sure they are clear on what they need to do rather than really compelling them to comply but we're taking a different standpoint and it might be that through this process we find that our powers aren't quite fit for purpose but it's important that we test the boundaries and make sure that we push it as far as we can and then if we find that we need something different then we can go and have that conversation with government to address that but we're really starting from that viewpoint in this particular initiative so it will look different from what we've done before.
3: And I suppose that drive in the DC market you know there are Authorised DC Master Trust, where you know that actually they're run by fit and proper people and they've got right systems and processes and so on. That is different, isn't it, in the DB world, because you've got an assessment regime, but not an authorization regime for super funds. And DB Master Trust don't need to be authorized in the same way as DC Master Trust. So is that a bit of a gap in the kind of regulatory oversight?
0: There are several authorisation regimes, you know, that are either in place or in gestation and we can see where that's going. And I think particularly with taking DB Master Trust as an example, yes, they've been in existence for a long time and we're starting to see more interest um, in those as a mechanism. And I think if we see that there are risks there, potentially, that are equivalent with other schemes that have an authorisation process, it's hard to argue why wouldn't you have an authorisation process around those vehicles as well, so...
3: And then again, in your session earlier, you know that consolidation together with the effectively the changing market of the trustee market, the rise of professional trustees, sole corporate trustees so you 're getting now really quite a small number of individuals who 've got enormous influence over the governance and operation of pension schemes so how do you see that developing? Do you see that the regulator will get more involved in the supervision of professional trustee firms. From our own survey, we can see that a lot of corporate sole appointments, there is quite often in a professional trustee firm, a risk committee, a governance committee that oversees some of the decision-making. But it seems inconsistent to us from one firm to another. So are you as a regulator thinking actually we're a little bit worried about the consolidation and the influence that a really small number of people have? And the breadth of services that some of those professional trustee firms are delivering is sort of beginning to widen. So are the conflicts there. How are you looking at this developing market?
0: Yeah, so I think I think there's a there's a few things there. So firstly, the work around professional trustee accreditation and making sure that the bar is pretty high actually for being a professional trustee. That's a starting point, I think, and one that we definitely want to pursue. In terms of how we interact with professional trustee firms. I think this is part one of the pieces of, of us evolving as a regulator. So much like we've introduced our approach with third-party administrators where, you know, actually we're looking at you're a big service provider to a lot of schemes. What are the challenges you're facing? Where are the issues arising? What are the things that we as a regulator should or shouldn't be concerned about? We can see a really strong argument for moving to a similar approach with professional trustee firms. In some instances, that could be quite straightforward but not all professional trustee firms have house views for example so it will be exploring how do they deal with different schemes as well but that is definitely an approach we're interested in exploring.
4: And perhaps at <laughs> the other end of the scale I was just had a really interesting conversation here on the LCP stand with a couple of lay trustees. And they were interested in what the CEO of TPR said this morning about possible uh, accreditation of of all trustees. And they were saying, "Mm, you know, we think it's coming and, well, we have to pass certain exams. And they were saying, you know, sometimes in the discussion, there's really just kind of high-powered investment specialists and professional trustees, and they're talking a language that maybe the lay trustees don't quite understand Where are you on that spectrum between, you know, everyone who's a trustee has a proper job to do and you want them to be up to the job, but also the perspective that the lay trustee can bring that could be lost if you raise the bar too high? I mean, where do you think you'll land on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we think that lay trustees have a lot to offer. And we think it's important to retain that in some ways. So I think we need to make sure that we're realistic about what we expect of lay trustees versus professional trustees. But I think that actually professional trustees have probably got a much larger role to play in supporting lay trustees. They have the expertise, they have the time, they have the resources. So actually, in terms of upskilling lay trustees, I think they've got a role to play. Whether it's reasonable to expect lay trustees to all become highly qualified, you know, that's something that is, is questionable probably in you. you as you say you might lose the value that lay trustees really bring then so it's about finding that balance and how do the two roles interact
4: sure
3: we potentially are putting quite a lot of challenges to trustees aren't we you talked about the importance potentially of a trustee board having somebody who understands cyber and you can see that climate change might also be really good thing to have an understanding of how to communicate on social media So the breadth of expertise that we're saying would be really useful for a trustee board to have is growing. At the same time, we're saying trustee boards should become more diverse. And then the idea that trustee boards should have a professional trustee amongst their group so that they can understand the requirements on them. How do you deal with those small charities, those not-for-profit organisations where a lot of people are voluntarily giving their time to do these things, but you still got all these challenges that the regulator expects them to do? So do you think there should be an exemption for charity schemes or not-for-profit schemes, or do you have the same expectations, if you like, right across the piece?
0: I think the expectations are the same. I think there might be nuances in how you go about achieving those same outcomes. And I think, you know, what we, we haven't really talked much about is the role of advisors in this. And so I think, you know, advisors do have a really key role to play as well. But regardless of with trusteeship, whether you're professional or lay trustee, I think one of the kind of key skills is that ability to challenge and confidence to challenge and make sure that you ask questions of your advisors so that you can get yourself really comfortable as a trustee with the decisions that you're making so then that doesn't necessarily need to be about knowing all the ins and outs of the technical detail but it needs to be having the right mindset to kind of question and challenge and get yourself comfortable in that way.
4: Great well we're nearly up to time perhaps we can squeeze one more in which is the whole sort of decumulation issue because I I suppose the early phases of autumn enrolment was really all about building pots and pension freedoms was about sort of at retirement choices and I think rightly now the discussion is well what about the next quarter of a century kind of thing. I had an interesting conversation again at the conference with someone who said, well, as a trustee, I care what happens to my members post-retirement, but I'm not sure my corporate sponsor does because they don't work for them anymore. I mean, many of the members haven't worked for them for a while anyway, but none of them will work for them sort of post-retirement. So as a trustee, can I say to the corporate sponsor, I want you to enable us to run the scheme through retirement to keep members and look after them there or just shove them all off? somewhere approved, a master trust or something like that. I mean, do you, do you have any instinct as to where TPR, what do you see the post-retirement landscape looking like?
0: It's a really interesting question because I think kind of regardless of where the provision sit, so whether schemes themselves offer decumulation options, which we understand is a challenging thing to ask. You know, there's a, a lot of cost associated with that, and you can understand why it might not be attractive. But I think the key thing is, though, that there are A good range of options available and that they are all accessible for people. So I do certainly think as a minimum that trustees should be talking to sponsors about making sure that they have robust support in place to help guide their members at the point of retirement, even if they're not taking them through that journey themselves. I think that's a really key point and something that isn't given as much emphasis now but is going to become more and more important in the future
4: yeah i'm sure and just a ps um colleague of mine sitting not very far away from me one of his first blogs for lcp was about the challenges of people with modest DB pots trying to get financial advice on transfers. And as you know, there's a legal requirement at 30K, but trying to find an advisor will give you good advice at 40 or 50K that's affordable and cost-effective and so on. So David had some interesting ideas about flexing within the DB world and so on. I mean, given the challenge, you know, we did an FOI the other day that showed the number of approved IFAs able to do transfer advice fallen by about two-thirds. So the supply is drying up. Are you in that long shopping list that David and you have been talking about things, are you able to give any attention to that and the advice environment for people with modest DB pots?
0: I mean, I think that does fall under the kind of scope of what DWP continues to consider in terms of where the advice guidance boundary is. And along with that, what's the point at which people need to be required to have advice? So I think obviously that is a decision for government if they wanted to sort of change what that looks like. But it is certainly something that is part of that thinking when they're reviewing those kinds of things so I think it is on the radar it is on the radar but probably not right at the top of the priority list just at the moment
4: (laughs) fair enough well thank you for being so frank with us so uh, a final non-pensions question because obviously we like to find out what people do when they're not doing pensions and whether they're reading any particularly good books at the moment or um, what you have on your car cd player or a a favorite podcast that our listeners might like to listen to what would you like to recommend to us
0: well one book that I have, audio book actually, that I've read recently which is one of the most fascinating books that I've read for a long time is actually Paul Johnson's Follow the Money, huh? um, which is a properly fascinating. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's one, it's like a, you know, unput downable in that kind of like, oh my goodness, you know, it, I would highly recommend that to anyone if, uh, for a bit of a...
4: <laughs> very good. Well, I second that. I've, I've read it, and he's very nice about me. So uh, definitely we should put that on the on the show notes, I think. Um, Lou Davey, thank you ever so much for your time. We know it's getting towards the end of the conference, so we really value your time and your openness. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Thank
0: you
4: very much. So that brings to an end our series
3: of podcasts delivered from Manchester here at the PLSA Conference. We hope you've enjoyed listening to them. we certainly enjoyed the discussions. we had some fascinating insights from various people who come into our podcast booth. Beyond Curious with LCP, we'll be back for season two in November, where we'll be connecting with CEOs and founders across different sectors to deep dive into the journeys, challenges and triumphs that have shaped today's industry leaders. Watch this space.
0: If you enjoyed Beyond Curious with LCP, remember to rate and subscribe and follow us on social media. We'll be back next time with more questions, insights and curious conversations. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.